2: Hello and welcome to Gabfest Reads for August 2022. It's the Invisible Things edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. And I am joined today on Gabfest Reads by Matt Johnson. Matt and I are going to talk about his wild, strange, and very funny new novel, Invisible Things. Matt is the Knight Chair of Humanities at the University of Oregon. And he's the author of books of nonfiction, graphic novels, and novels, including him, And Loving Day, Loving Day being an Emily Bazelon favorite. Matt, welcome to GapFest Reads. Congratulations on Invisible Things.
1: Hey, nice to meet you.
2: So Invisible Things is an allegorical novel about New Roanoke, a city inside a bubble located on a moon of Jupiter. A U.S. spaceship discovers New Roanoke, which turns out to be a pleasant facsimile of an american city complete with all the fast food outlets of the home planet but populated entirely by people who were inexplicably kidnapped from earth and woke up on new roanoke new roanoke has a governing party it has a fox-like tv network it has lots of economic inequality and is sustained by shipments of goods that appear to come from nowhere Um, the story of invisible things is about the tumult unleashed when a pair of American spaceships and their crews arrive at New Roanoke and, and uh, what happens then? And it's an extremely funny and political and ominous kind of book, uh, more so even than my brief summary suggests. So, so Matt, first of all, it reminded me, as I'm sure it will remind everyone who reads it, of a book I have not read since high school, which is Gulliver's Travels. Was that an inspiration for this book?
1: Yes, and also completely inadvertently. Like a lot of times, When I'm done is when I look and see the DNA, you know, of certain books. And things like Gulliver's Travel has such a massive impact on so many books that it's not just, you know, the original, but that the entire way we frame the conversation ends up coming to that. Like originally, the last two books I wrote about um, monsters under the ice in Antarctica. And, you know, I'd originally been inspired by the first movie I ever saw alone, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. And I didn't know until after that that John Carpenter's The Thing was inspired, you know, a couple steps away through Lovecraft and then uh, to Poe, to a uh, narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym and the Antarctica. So, you know, as somebody who actually teaches early American lit sometimes, these things are really genetically <laughs> like in the literature, like how we think about framing things. And so when it was done, I you looked and I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense, you know. Um, but at the time, it wasn't like a conscious thing
2: the great, well, there are lots of great inventions in this book, but the really great invention is this idea that they're on the moon Europa, just off the coast of Jupiter, is a city that is extremely like an American city. Uh, where did this idea of a bubble city eerily like our own come from? What were you seeing in the world around you that made you, you know, think, oh, here's an allegory for me?
1: All these things come in from a lot of different places. So it's like, sometimes it's looked back and it looks like it comes from one place or it comes from another. But I think the original impetus was that every time we have a conversation about what's happening in America, in our country, or in Britain, um, you know, or France, or, or, or all of us that are going through very similar cultural moments, not identical, but very similar, that as soon as you say like two words, um, people get an idea of where you're coming from. They understand your your uh, your initial prejudices what news sources you're accessing, all these things. So it's really incredibly difficult to have a conversation that hasn't already uh, become stale before you hit the third word. Right. And so initially I was looking, you know, at what was happening in the States, what was happening with Brexit. And I was wanting to have a conversation that, that wasn't here, you know, that was someplace else and removed it. Um, I think ultimately, I think I found I couldn't separate it as much as I wanted to because it, it was just too specific uh, to this moment. But I did want to take it someplace else where at least I could get five words into the sentence before people would have these set things. And also, the, like I look at novels the same way we our, our brain uses dreams, right? In dreams, nothing actually happened. And the, the people in our dreams don't act like they actually do in real life. And the places we go in our dreams are kind of collages of, of places we know. And the reason we do that, the reason our, our mind does that, is it allows us just enough distance to be able to examine situations without the, you know, being stuck in the same loops and in the same prejudices, and also have some emotional distance, right? Almost like, Like, you know, I teach mouse sometimes and, uh, Art Spiegelman's mouse and just the slight difference of having, you know, mice and cats and dogs has this massive impact on how you can emotionally deal with the text. And so, um, I looked at it like that. And also with, along with that, I went into it, kind of like I went into dreams where I didn't know where we were going to go. The central metaphor of the the book, the invisible things didn't come until I think the second draft of, of the book, you know, um, because that, having that distance was enough to let me find things that I couldn't necessarily do in my conscious mind.
2: Right, and the central metaphor, just for our listeners, is this idea that there are, there are forces that, that, that act on people on this planet that are invisible, and no one will talk about it in the mirror, and it's a shibboleth, you cannot talk about it, and talking about it endangers you, and, it, and, it, and no one will be around you. There's so many allegories, this is about race, It is about climate change it's about politics it's about inequality all of which are sort of major themes of this book and all of which you could argue are invisible things of our world right
1: right yeah i think like one of the frustrating things as a satirist was that we are living in a satire right and like the essence of satire is you take reality and you ratchet it up to extreme and but and then we can see the absurdity of it but we you, I mean, like, We live in an absurd reality, you know? And so like, I always like, thought there should have been a, you know, a bailout of satirists at some point because it, it's so difficult to function the way we used to function. Um, so what I tried to do instead was instead of getting caught in the weeds on uh, climate or caught in the weeds on, on, um, you know, on, on race, on, on misogyny, all these things, like, I think I've become more interested in the overall way that we as individuals and as a society function, um, the way we store and negotiate information that ends up having us deal with these situations in almost identical ways. And, you know, like, I think for having a bigger target allows um, so much more to come in, because, again, if I was thinking just with race or with climate, and I'm, it's certainly a part of the thinking, but... Um, then I wouldn't have been able to see how this applies to other things, right? And um, how this this way of uh, not acknowledging uh, t- directly reality, because it's, you know, it's difficult to deal with, it's possibly fruitless and pointless, and not worth the effort of dealing with it, but also it, where we end up going because of that, and then the cycles of it. And, you know, I wrote this before the pandemic, pr- primarily, and, a lot of the things that I wrote about ended up playing out in some ways um, over the last couple of years, and I think that was because I was just looking at the bigger ways we deal with stuff.
2: I love the idea of the satire bailout. By the way, they the <laughs> there shows like you can't watch Veep. Veep is unwatchable now, which was a funny show, or the movie Idiocracy, which just now seems like a documentary. There is this idea running through it that you know we will not look at the things that are too difficult. I don't like to look at the things that are too difficult. Are you somebody who actually goes around and is like, I really want to face up to the hard realities of the world around me? Because I sure the fuck don't.
1: The initial impetus of the book was immediately the, the first horrific year of the Trump administration. Um, I was online, like on Twitter, and everybody I know was on Twitter. And everyone's just like like screaming, like, ah, ah! You know, like every day, the worst thing in the world was happening. It, I was still in my screaming on Twitter phase. And I would go, uh, I'd be on Twitter all day, you know, inadvertently. And then I would go to the coffee shop and I would see, I was living in Houston at a time at, at the University of Houston, and it was a main coffee shop that a lot of uh, the department would go to. And so i go in, I'd see all these people who had also been screaming online for months and I'd run into them and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? Oh, fine, how you doing? Good, good. Hey, huh, okay, good. And then that was it, right? Because there was nothing to talk about right we both shared our the same reality we both knew what was happening there was no we were trying to relax there was no benefit to it and if we didn't share the same reality there was nowhere to go in that conversation because right now like we aren't arguing over facts we're arguing over realities right and we have a large segment of population that has been unmoored you know from reality so there's there's no way you can win an argument with somebody that where facts don't matter right so uh, ultimately what i found was we just weren't talking about things because there just was, wasn't much to do. And the ones who were talking about it just sounded crazy. You know, Mueller's going to come and he's going to save us all. And, you know, and like it, it was this like crazy theories because, you know, at the time it felt like there was nothing we could do. Now, looking back, if I could go back, I, there was things I would tell you know, uh, the past version of myself to do, like, w- we need to worry about the elections next time. And we need to worry about these uh, a- attempts to kind of overthrow democracy, of which there was tons of signs early. Um, but it seems so overwhelming, and we we're so overwhelmed by what we couldn't do that, like, it was easy to forget or, or devalue the little things that turns out to be essential.
2: Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash easy, ramp.com slash easy, dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC, terms and conditions apply. You're so good on power and co-optation and how people sort of join systems and get co-opted by systems. And the crew of this, uh, one of the crews of this, this ship that ends up on on New Roanoke uh, has a, a leader who's just a guy who always makes his way in institutions, and he recognizes that he can become a leader on New Roanoke by being a sycophantic newcomer and that the sycophantic newcomer who tells you comes to your society and tells you how great your society is and sucks up to you is somebody who's always really welcome. Even if in fact, life for a newcomer is terrible, life for an immigrant is terrible. If the person who comes and says, Oh, this is so great. Oh, I'm so glad to be part of it. That person is really welcomed by the ruling class, which is a, it's a phenomenon that we see all over our world.
1: Yeah. I mean, coming, like I'm mixed um, with African-American mixed and coming from the black American world, it just, it's the, if you are a mediocre person, but you want to do really well in, uh, as a public intellectual, then um, all you have to do is supplant yourself, you know, to the people who would otherwise destroy you. (laughs) And, And the, you know, the door is always open. You know, it's, it's not like a surprise that people, you know, like Herman Cain were able to do so well within the Republican Party. Herman Cain would have made it out of the door in on the Democratic side because it would have been far more competition um, that he wouldn't have been able to stand up to. And so you see that again and again. It's also it's 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 kind of scary too because it, then you also have to ask yourself, you know, why am I why am I being accepted here? Or why uh, or you know why are they want me to say what I'm saying? Particularly if what you're doing is contrary to the to the mainstream of your of your individual group. You know, um, even like as a professor, like like I, I work in a very, very um, uh, uh, sort of, I, I do not even know. It's so, it's almost like a serfdom surf, uh, system. We have people like myself who teach um, relatively small amounts of courses and get paid a lot of money. And then you have a, a serf class of adjunct professors who teach endless classes for almost no money. Some of them, people living in their cars, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very happy. One of the reasons I wanted to come to Oregon was because they had a union, um, at which the, my last institution didn't have. How am I getting pulled into that system? How am I getting pulled into other systems? You know, I think that is still always one of the trickiest things. And it's also frustrating when you're on the other side of it and you see everybody in, you know, all team blue is saying we should do this. And they find one like, you know, half awake guy in the corner is like, we should do the opposite. And that that's the guy they pull out to to listen to. So you just see it kind of again and again.
2: I want to go back to this question about the invisible things and, and the, the people of New, Ro- New Roanoke just refuse to look at, all these forces around them, the inequality around them, and the force that brought them to New Roanoke, which they don't understand. Is it better to look at these things or not better to look at these things?
1: Ultimately, I don't think we have a choice. You know, um, one of of the weird moments during the pandemic that reminded me of something that was already in the book was was the Black Lives Matter initial explosion of protesting in the street, um, which is very similar to, you know, uh, where the book goes. And like, it was a reminder that like the question is not whether you're going to deal with it. The question is how are you going to deal with it? Right. It's just like, like, you know, if you have medical symptoms of a problem, you can ignore that it's easier to ignore it, but eventually you're going to have to deal with it. And so much of how we're living in our society right now, in American society in particular, has to do with things we really didn't want to deal with that are all hitting the fan at once. And so like, it's scary to me as an American, as a person who loves so much about about this country. Watching, you know, as Malcolm X said, uh, "chickens come home to roost," and, and watching, um, you know, our basic hypocrisies hitting us in the face, you know, again and again. And it, it does feel like everybody thinks they live in the Armageddon times, but it does feel like um, our major problems also have to do with our major hypocrisies, uh, you know, as a nation. So for that reason, like, yeah, I mean, we we don't have a choice. We have to deal with it. And in fact, like, if something feels uncomfortable, there's probably a good indication that we should be talking about it.
2: One of your characters describes New because as having this sort of division where it's, it's 10, 20, 40, 20, 10, uh, sort of in the bulk of society, the 40% of society, which doesn't, they just kind of want to get along. There's only a small percentage that is so really needs to shake it up and break it. And there's only a small percent that's hugely benefiting from it. And most people are just like, okay, whatever. Let's just let's just keep going.
1: Yeah, which is obvious, right? Like the people who are, are going to be fighting tooth and nail to keep society exactly the way they are are they the people who are benefiting the most from it. And the people who are going to be complaining the most about it and the most ardent about changing a society, it's usually not because they're particularly good people it's because they are being adversely directly affected by what's going on right it's not a moral a moral purity it's it's the fact that they're getting screwed right and so if a society is going to function then the majority has to be kind of untouched enough that they don't give a shit you know I, in my own family like i'm very fortunate like as a as a mixed person who's who's uh close to all my family on, on, on Irish-American side, you know, white side and uh, African-American side, when I talk to some of my family members on, on, that, on that white side, um, you know, they live in the suburbs. They're really not affected in their minds by anything that's going on. And so when you start to have a conversation about anything kind of veers into that, they're immediately, they go into, well, both sides, right? And what, well, well, both sides actually translates is, this is not affecting me. So I'm just going to pretend it's not happening. And if things get bad enough that it does, then I'll pay attention at that point, right? So, which is also understandable. I mean, we have busy lives. I mean, I probably didn't miss an episode of, of uh, Political Gap Fest for like a decade. they um, yeah, really- <laughs> my enjoyed. God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Think
2: of how many novels uh, you could have written. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> one of the weird things is I realized at one point, like, you know, I'm also a big 76ers fan. It's almost the same, you know, <laughs> like I'm watching a drama unfold. I know the characters, I know the tragedies, I know the victories. And so it's not simply that I'm trying to be uh, up to date. I'm also watching a soap opera in the same way that you watch soap opera, literally the same way you watch a sports team. Right. And so, you know, all the characters and everything else. But most people don't have that as a hobby. Right. Right. And so because they don't have a hobby, they're presented with all this information that's very difficult to decipher. And if you don't know what's going on, it's almost impossible to figure out who's saying what. Like I was just watching the hearings and seeing the people uh, showing up to protest at the, uh, at the different state officials' houses to get them to overturn the election. And when you hear what they're saying, like, you are a traitor. You are, you are defiling the Constitution. They're yelling all these things that are projection. You know that. Oh, I don't even know if this projection because that implies a subconscious effort. But they're you're, they're yelling things that they are guilty of, right? And so if you are not in that world, it's like it's confusing, it's annoying. And if you don't have to deal with it, you've got a million other things to deal with, and you're not going to be thinking about it. But um, you know, unfortunately, that group of kind of complacent people, um, understandably complacent people, end up basically being. Uh, Unconscious supporters of the status quo. And for that reason, you know, it's almost impossible to move things around because everything doesn't really matter what at this point um, one party does. It's both sides, right? So it doesn't matter if one party, you know, stubs a toe and the other party gets its leg chopped off. It's both sides, right? They both have difficulty with that. And, you know, and the media, of course, plays into that. I think, too, as Americans, we have been privileged with the idea that we really don't have to pay attention to what's going on. We're going to be fine, and this is particularly white, white Americans, white middle class Americans. That you know, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, I'm going to be fine. It doesn't matter. Now, the, for me, on my black side, I'm watching the news, going like, I'm watching Trump, going like, Am I going to get killed? Like, is my family, are my kids going to be okay walking down the street? He's inciting hate that is directly affecting my life. Is my son going to get? Uh, shot coming back from school, right? So I'm much more focused on it. Um, But yeah, I think it's just a natural way that we end up grouping.
2: So I did not know when I read this book, because I had not read other books by you, that you also write graphic novels. And I want to say, and this is a high praise indeed, it reads like a graphic novel. Like it is a very visual novel. You paint a picture of this city and this world that is visually pleasing and active. And it's like full of... Visual life as a book
1: yeah, I have no sense of smell. I haven't smelled anything since 1997, I think and I think because of that I think it actually for years I was like, why does my work tend to be more visual? Um, and I think that's why is that my my smells on a system my hearing isn't particularly great. Um, so things visually have this massive uh, impact for me. And I started by reading comics. I wouldn't read books when I was little. I read comics from like six to about eleven. And the only reason I think I switched to books was that I was embarrassed to read comic books, like, you know, in public um, at the time. I probably wouldn't be at 11 today. And then the other part of it was financial, like in Philly at 30th Street, uh, sorry, at Reading Terminal Station in Philly, there was a used bookstore. And they had sci-fi books in there for like 50 cents. Um, you know, used, beat up old Heinlein, you know, Roger Zelazny books like that. And I realized, well, if for 50 cents, I could buy one comic that I can read in 20 minutes, or I can buy this this novel that I could read for, you know, a week or two weeks. And that got the addiction going. But I think it's still like just part of like how I look at the world.
2: What's the science fiction you love?
1: Oh, um, I think growing up, I was, Roger Zelensky was like a huge one. I can't read it now because this misogyny is, is so thick in a lot of it that it's just like, <laughs> you know, once you see it, you know, um, but my mother had a bunch of science fiction books around the house that I used to read and Ray Bradbury and Heinlein, it, uh, that golden age of, of early sci-fi. And then I think when I started moving towards literary fiction, it wasn't in this urge to read serious fiction. It was an urge to read better sci-fi and fantasy. And, um, you know, the way I got the first big book of literary fiction I got into uh, was Beloved because it was a ghost story. You know, and I was interested in a ghost story. And then I got interested in Vonnegut, you know, because uh, it had those elements in it, the elements of fantastic, which I I really loved. And that kind of opened up this whole other wide range. But I think myself and a lot of people, of my kind of Gen X uh, generation, were heavily influenced by genre writing. And, And also, in some ways, reacting to a type of realism of, of depressed, upper-middle-class white people that, you know, the New Yorker realism. Many of the books, I, stories in that vein I love, but um, I wanted something more, and I needed something more to kind of break open the page um, in a way that that realism really couldn't do.
2: What is the deal with Bubble Cities? Yours is the third novel I've read in the last year that has a Bubble City in it. No, sea of Tranquility, the Emily St. John Mandel book is a, another Bubble City book.
1: I think when you're talking about the fact that like things just show up in this place in new Roanoke um, at the beginning, it just felt like a, a, a um, strategic things to build this reality. And then I look back at it and I'm like, Oh yeah, I live in a world where things just show up on boats. I have no idea where they come from. I mean, in Portland, we have all these you know tankers coming in with Amazon products that I had no idea where they come from. So it's very real. And that bubble is, is obviously very real. When When I was in, I lived in Texas for 12 years and I think it was the first time I met people that were functionally living in an information bubble that was, that was disassociated from reality. And that was just kind of shocking. It's still shocking to me. Uh, I I wake up some days and I think like, if we didn't have Rupert Murdoch and nobody else, it was the other one who stepped in. And we also didn't have a vastly disproportionate Senate. Where will we be right now? But we do. And so we have these kind of bubble realities uh, that we try and equate and say they're all the same, but they're not. Uh, Some of them are really hardcore. So yeah, I think like the bubbles don't even feel like really a metaphor. It just feels like how we're actually living.
2: As you were talking about the ships, it's so true that who knows where it all comes from? Who knows what the supply chain is? Like it's, it all, it all could be just conjured up off the Pacific coast. It just magically appears there for all we know.
1: If I had to explain it, that's probably what I would say.
2: Matt Johnson's very funny, very provocative, deeply enjoyable book is Invisible Things, a new novel. It's out now. Thanks for coming on GapFest Reads, Matt.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: That's GapFest Reads for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at at Slate and tweet chatter, your chatter to us there. Maybe what book you'd like us to read on GabFest Reads. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you again on Thursday.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty
3: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel, and a sitting state Supreme Court justice.